we only we only have X number of roads out of town, and they start cutting them. We're not joking. We sent so, water and food. I miss Snickers bars, so those would be great. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll send an airdrop in for you, Nathan. Oh, my God. And rum, and rum for Jeb. Yes, Jeb that needs might rum. work. Jeb needs more yeah. rum. You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hey, everyone. The Archaeology Podcast Network is starting a new three-tier membership system in July. All your favorite shows will always be free, but we're offering a little extra for those that want it. Check out arcpodnet.com slash members for details. That's arcpodnet.com slash members for details on our awesome new member site. Thanks for supporting us. Ancient tools and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals. All these things we make no apology for the study of archaeology. We don't do dinosaurs, no we don't Welcome do to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, Episode 76. I'm your host, Sarah Head, and I'm joined today with my co-hosts, Ken Fader and Jeb Card. Today we have special guest, Nathan French, with us from the University of Miami in Ohio. Nathan works in the Department of Comparative Religions and is an expert in Islamic law and the histories and theories of jihad and Islam. Nathan joins us today to talk about the destruction of several archaeological sites of importance as well as artifacts throughout the Middle East that have either been destroyed or have been sold on the black market, and how that impacts the field of archaeology. You're ready to think critically. You will see are a staple of archaeology. We don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast. I am your host, Sarah Head, and I am joined today with my co hosts, Ken Fader and Jeb Card. How's it going, guys? It's going swell. Raining like hell here in Connecticut, but I'm looking forward to this podcast. Ken, before, before we start, are you, are you digging this summer? I had the feeling you were. Yeah, I will be in the field beginning next week, right after Memorial Day. So Okay, all right. Maybe I'll drive up to Connecticut and stick a trowel in the ground with you. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. And today we have a special guest with us is uh, Nathan French, who is out of the same institution as Jeb. Yes, Uh, Nathan. Yeah, good morning, Nathan. Uh, You are an assistant professor in our Department of Comparative Religion, and you're not an archaeologist. I want to put that straight out. Out there, and Absolutely that's fine. Not. You're, not the, you're, you're not the first person we've had on the show that's not, but you actually bring some really detailed knowledge about a topic that there's been a lot in the news. There's been a lot of interest, and frankly, while you might think, wait, this doesn't fit archaeological fantasies. It absolutely does on multiple levels. And what we've asked you to come in and talk about, you're a, you're a specialist, and I, I don't want to misrepresent, but basically specialist in in studying jihadis and jihadism, right? That's right. All right. So my my sort of research background is in contemporary jihadi Salafism. So that means I'm studying Al Qaeda and the Islamic State and their relative affiliates and offshoots and developments. Uh, once had a student write an entire paper on jihadi salamis or uh, salamis, which was unfortunate. But uh, so I study I study jihadi Salafism. Salafi. <laughs> I do enjoy I do different. enjoy a good salami, but this is not that subject. <laughs> yeah, no, that was, I was that wondering was, if that was just like one of those words that's like sounds the same, uh, but was no, spelled different. Kind I of think thing. it was. I think it was autocorrect. Um, 
for the win yeah. or for the fail. I'm not sure which way to take that. <laughs> that sucks when that's your paper, if decide, though. If I ever decide to open a Middle Eastern delicatessen in Manhattan, that's what it's going to be called. Chinese <laughs> yeah. salamis. And it'll last for like a week. Yeah. But, but we wanted to bring you on because one of the things, I mean, Islamic State is unfortunately infamous for any number of things. And and this is your your work uh, is is you is you study you study what they're up to, uh, you're right. publishing. Uh, we'll we'll talk about it again. But you you have some you have some publication things in the pipe. Are you in a place you can talk about some of that? Uh, a little bit. So right now I'm actually finishing up a manuscript called "In God Knows the Martyrs," which looks at both how jihadi Salafis create sort of jurisprudence, what, what we'd call an Arabic fiqh. Uh, and their interpretation of the Sharia, and how within that creation they they develop an idea of martyrdom that's that's very much ascetical, um, which is something that isn't often studied in in Islamic studies. So it's a, it's one of the sort of the first looks at sort of the prax the praxis of jihadi Salafism that, that tries to go beyond just the raw violence that you encounter, you know, in the day to day of the headlines. Right. And that's why I wanted to bring you in, because one of the things, in addition to all the other horrible things that Islamic State is, is, is infamous for, is they have made quite a showing, quite a practice of blowing the hell out of archaeological sites, grinding down uh, archaeological monuments, uh, primarily in northern Iraq, but in uh, just that general whole borders are a mess area of Southwest Asia. And... Our immediate, you know, and I talk to students about this, I talk to colleagues, and of course our immediate thing is, oh my God, this is horrible. It is. Um, but one of the reasons I, I have you come and talk to my, my class, Culture, Art, and Artifact, about this, and I wanted to have you on the, on the show about this, is it's not anywhere near as simple and straightforward as these people are non-modern barbarians and they do this for... I, given that you're looking at praxis, given you're looking at jurisprudence and sort of some of the philosophy behind these actions, uh, I wanted to bring you on to uh, to talk about some of that and maybe help us understand why the hell this is happening, why archaeological sites are being targeted. And, and let, let me just start with this. Um, I think a lot of people, and I probably would have started here a couple of years ago, uh, who would go, I have, you know, who have no real idea about this would go, oh, uh, images are forbidden, and these are really super religious people. Therefore, that's why this is happening. What are all the different things wrong with what I just said? <laughs> so I think it's a good launching off point to start the conversation on, on just what this idea of jihadi Salafism is. Um, and it's a, it's a term that jihadi Salafis themselves have actually adopted. And, and, and a few different uh, scholars and, and journalists, among them um, Thomas Hegheimer from Norway, have sort of traced the genealogy of the origin of the term and actually argue that this may have been an actual Western, a sort of a Western neologism that the jihadis themselves adopted and liked it so much they kept it. Um, so jihadi Salafism, it's, it's better to start with the Salafism part to work into the jihadism part. Salafism has a whole lot of different expressions um, in the in the global Muslim community. You know, you 1.6 billion Muslims, all sorts of different interpretations and understandings of what Islam is. For Salafis, they believe that the most authentic expression of Islam is to follow the example that was set by the Prophet Muhammad, who of course died in 632 of the Common Era, uh, and his companions and followers. So let's say roughly the first three generations following his death. Um, 
And the, the belief there was that because those generations could transmit, either witnessed or could transmit often verbally later in writing the precedent of Muhammad, they had the best understanding of what it was to live the prophetic precedent of Islam. And we should be very clear that Salafis themselves were are not innately violent. Uh, the vast majority of Salafis live very quiet lives. If in some ways they might understand their life as being somewhat withdrawn um, and varying places from sort of quote-unquote mainstream society in order to better protect uh, uh, the sort of the purification and the quality of their other life of faith. Um, I always use the example for my students. Um, when you travel to the to the near Middle East and, and elsewhere, you'll see what's called a, a CWAC stick uh, in the grocery store, often next to a toothbrush. And the CWAC stick was uh, is a sort of has antimicrobial tendencies we've later found out, but it was used by Muhammad to clean his teeth. And so one of Muhammad's uh, cultural practices, one of his precedents, one of what we call his sunnah, uh, was to you know brush his teeth daily with the siwak stick, and he lauded those who did so. And so in, in the modern context, if someone's reading the sunnah and is trying to follow the prophetic example, uh, many, many Muslims would read that and go, well, we may not have to use a siwak stick now. God sent down other revelations and Muhammad. Muhammad had other sayings that said, you know, that and rough, roughly speaking, science, rationality, these are good things, and we now have toothbrushes and toothpaste, and so we should use those, but following the prophetic model, we should clean our teeth every day. A Salafi, on the other hand, might go, well, those are modern inventions. We should follow the prophetic example as best we can, and then, therefore, I'm going to use a CWAC stick. This is getting back to the fundamentals. So, yeah, exactly. Going back, to the, going back to the source. For jihadis, where we get jihadi Salafism, is the idea that, that that source is very, very important. But not only, but it is, it is, it is so important that it's actually under threat. It's existing in a state of emergency. And so for jihadis, the, the, there is an obligation, an individual obligation to, to struggle in God's cause, to sort of struggle and to, to, to wage a jihad, uh, to, to restore or protect that, that precedent. And at the core of that that precedent for the Salaf, for jihadi Salafis, is the importance of God's monotheism, or, or what we call in Arabic Tawheed. The idea of protecting God's oneness, which also means removing any partners to God. Now, those partners to God might be what we think of as sort of the other poly, the cult of polytheistic deities from, from before the revelation of Islam. But in the modern period for jihadi Salafis, that could include something like capitalism, in which one's god becomes wealth and its acquisition, or democracy, in which case the sovereignty of uh, of the people replaces the sovereignty of God, the head of the state. So any kind of potentially competing ideologies that that take away from this oneness. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And to sort of yeah. and to sort of show one's adherence to that that oneness of God, uh, there's a difference between sort of one's creed. Uh, one's aqidah and one's implementation of that creed or one's methodology, one's menhaj. And so that sort of starts us on the path to talking about what was, what's been happening in Syria and Iraq over the last few years with these various sites. Uh, because in part, it is a way of expressing uh, these, the usage of these sites for uh, the, the self-proclaimed Islamic state of Iraq and Hashem. Um, the usage of these sites is a way of performing multiple different roles. Some of those roles are for Western audiences. And some of those roles are also for, for local audiences or for those Muslims whom they feel they can, they can recruit, and, and non-Muslims as well. You've been uh, in, your, in your class, and I, I, I actually don't know. We, we might talk about this if we will link to some of this uh, uh, and, and at 
era. But you, you've shown in my class, for example, some of the, the videos or parts of them the, the, where they're destroying, uh, you know, bits of, of this Assyrian site and that Babylonian site where a, uh, uh, you know, a winged horse is being just, or, a, you know, a bullheaded horse is being destroyed, or a man-headed bull is being destroyed and all of this. And right. you mentioned multiple performances. Those videos, they're pro- those are aimed partly at the West, but a lot of those, like you said, are, are very much recruitment. One thing that I find absolutely fascinating. So first of all, if I, if I was going to summarize what you just were talking about, there's this interest in fundamentalists, this fundamentalism, you know, um, but it's only a subset that is frankly paranoid about it being sort of attacked from the outside or attacked from within or just from some quarter. Is that is that sort of a fair way of putting it? I think it's a fair way of putting it, yeah. So you, you've got – because the thing is this, this frankly sounds like some of the things we've talked about uh, on the show in terms of other kinds of religious fundamentalism and, and religious politics. But um, those videos seem to be largely aimed at recruitment. And one of the things I found absolutely fascinating – is again, I think there is very much this this misconception that a lot of this is coming from heavy ideology and people who are big students of ideology, and that's a lot. A lot of people in Islamic State aren't that is that does not well describe them, does it? Not everyone in ISIS is is particularly well versed in the intricacies of the theological and legal texts that a lot of the the ISIS leadership is is, is working with. But that being said, we know from their discussions of training that they are receiving compulsory religious classes every day at some level. So again, I think right. we can say that these videos and, and these materials, you know, in terms of various audiences, are a way of showing to adherents, to potential recruits, and to others that they're following through in action on the basis of the ideas that they're that they're putting out in texts and in tweets and, and, and elsewhere. Right. So so this is definitely performance. So taking taking a taking a grinder to a, an ancient monument or blowing yes. up the art the arch at Palmyra. So part of that is definitely a performance to show, like, look, we are doing the things that go back to fundamentals. Like, we are removing these these ideologies. And there's there's one example that um, I know we've talked about in the past, and that is – I'm pulling up my notes um, – uh, Dr. Al-Assad, Khaled Al-Assad, he was a Syrian archaeologist, and he was right. uh, one of the sort of the guardians of Palmyra, and he ended up being killed, beheaded, and then blown up when Palmyra, the, the arch there, which was a, a Roman period site, and we're going to come back to that, was destroyed. And, and, I, and I think maybe right. you were talking about, again, separating ideologies. What, how, how might he be viewed from this perspective? Well, I think we have to look at the timeline of how these videos sort of okay, unfolded. Okay, go ahead. So, you know, so ISIS sweeps into Mosul in June of 2014. Uh, by February of 2015, they're releasing videos like the ones we've talked about in class of the Lamassu being ground down and jackhammered and various panels being destroyed. Of course, some of those look to have been authentic. Some of those look to have been perhaps or originals some of those look to have been replications some were repli- um, so, some appear to be plaster replicas yes not that's all but right. some do yeah that's right shortly thereafter in april the um isis really goes all in on the assyrian city of, of nimrud and, and what's interesting there is one of the temples they destroy we should probably mention this now i guess one of the temples they destroy is that of alat who was understood to have been um a, a goddess worshipped along with mena and Al-Uzza and Mecca in the pre-Islamic period. So we see within, you know, almost a year of taking control of Mosul and, and that area of Iraq, 
once they have firm control, they begin sort of re reasserting a historical narrative on the on the territory. And part of that, what's interesting about that is, of course, when Muhammad, when the Prophet Muhammad makes um, the return into uh, Mecca, 628-629 of a common era, one of the first things he does is destroy these other polytheist, uh, polytheistic deities in Mecca. Uh, so in many ways there, they're actually re-performing in their understanding, they're re-performing the actions of the Prophet. They return to their home territory, having been exiled from northern Iraq, having to go into Syria, they come back to northern Iraq, and they begin destroying these polytheistic deities, including the shrine to Allah, this, this, this possible female consort of Allah, um, as understood in the pre-Islamic period. So they see themselves from, from the very beginning as sort of asserting a narrative of we are following the prophetic precedent in establishing a state in this territory. And then a few months later in July is when we get the, the very visceral and violent public execution video uh, staged in the Palmyra Amphitheater in which the entire uh, the entirety of males of, of male the entire male population of, of the neighboring communities is brought in to watch the execution of uh, those whom uh, ISIS uh, proclaim are, are spies uh, against the state. Um, by August of 2015, we get a video of the destruction of another shrine. And, and then, of course, in May of 2016, we'll probably get there a little later, the, once the Russians have taken it back over, they host a concert. So we see yeah. this set of well, competing it's, narratives. It's, it's right? We see, right, the, 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 the February toppling of the statues, yes, it, they do acknowledge in their publication, Dabit is meant to antagonize the West. And, and antagonize what they know is, is a Western concern for cultural history. Um, yeah. It's also no, meant to come, perform... I want to come back to that. I want to come back to that. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Good. All right. It's also it's also meant to perform, you know, a, a, a way of antagonizing the West in the sense that why is it... I mean, in, in, a, in a lot of ways, ISIS is, is similar to Al-Qaeda on this account. It's about hypocrisy. So... Well, the question there is, why is it you Westerners are so concerned with cultural heritage, cultural legacy, and these stones, these dead stones of these dead civilizations? Why is it you care so much about them, but you don't care about the lives uh, of innocent Muslims that are being um, uh, taken away by the regime in Syria and by and by what they would consider to be interfering, meddling, imperialist, and disbelieving powers? Right? Why is it you care so little for human life and so much for these for this monumental for this monumental life? What's, what's, that's interesting because it reminds me of when the Taliban blew up the Buddhas in Afghanistan in 2001. Uh, one of, the, one of the, the buzz was that, listen, we want to prevent you Westerners from putting all this money into saving statues, and you don't care about the famine that's killing people right, right in the shadows of those statues. So they were making sort of that same argument that you guys are more interested in dead stone than you are in living people. And we are going to punish you for that, or we're going to we're going to antagonize you as a result of your 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 focus on on dead stuff and your your ignoring living people. Yeah. Right, certainly an antagonism, but it's also I mean think about it this way. Some of this again it goes back to multiple layers of purpose. It goes back to recruitment, right? The, the goal is to show show these individuals in Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan and Pakistan that the nation state cannot meet their needs and fundamentally does not care about them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's funny you bring up the the, the Taliban and, and, and the Bamiyan Buddhists in 2001, Ken, because I actually in class – and this angered some students and I was making it as a, for a, as a point right. – went, went the other way. 
with that because the Taliban was executing people because their hair wasn't right. And they were killing women like by dropping walls on them with tanks and, and other kinds of things. And this was in the news and people were paying mm -hmm. attention. But when the Buddhas got blown up, holy shit, all the news, right, yeah. all the news media. And, and I have some thoughts that I, I would like to come back to later in the show about why that is. But, you know, people were like, oh, well, yeah, they're killing these people. But, oh, my God, they blew up those statues. There's, there's, a, there's an argument sometimes from the other side there as well. And, and, and this will get back to, I think, some, some, some motivations. You, you mentioned the, the, the videos, Nathan. And, and one of the yes. things I, I want to point out is, um, again, the ones that are made especially for, for you know, consumption. Some of my students, when they saw bits of these, they very much commented on them being really slick. And, and this is another one of these, these kinds of, I think, misconceptions. And some of my students were like, wait, why are they using really good – aren't they anti-modern? They're using really good software and blah, blah, blah. C could you clear – that up a little well I, i'd say one of the one of the sort of older discussions in salafi thought well i say older one of the early you know 19th century 20th century conversations especially early 20th century conversations in salafism was on the usage of uh loudspeakers to broadcast the call to prayer or even the usage of cassette tapes to, to disseminate the friday sermons the khutbahs and other lectures uh salafi scholars might give and in that sense, there, there's an idea of, of public welfare. Like, what is best for the public welfare? If, if, if one is using technology as the vehicle to spread the truth, um, as in, in this case, as jihadi Salafis understand it, of what Islam is, then there, there can be no harm in using the technology that is provided to be able to do so. Um, just as paper was once a new technology in the Abbasid Caliphate, so too now is are these electronic devices a way and means of disseminating um, and, and sort of missionizing the populace as to the truth of what these communities understand Islam to be. So in, in, in honesty, there's, there's no issue with the, the technology. In fact, most recently, the ISIS has been you know, touting these new anti-tank rockets that it's developed um, on its own, ostensibly, it says, uh, in Syria. So they have no problems with technological development. The issue that the problem becomes when the, the technology enters into the level of God. So I, let's say, for example, I don't, I don't think they'd be terribly fond of the idea of transhumanism or, um, you know, uh, genetically modifying or technologically modifying the body. Right. Right. Well, and, and this is the thing I, I – this is one of the, re one of the several reasons, and, and we'll get to some more, why I think this actually is, in addition to our just larger archaeological mission, appropriate for the show that we do. Um, because something we've railed on quite a bit is that a lot of the stuff that we cover, and whether – you know, a lot of it seems very goofy and some of it's less goofy. We've had some other more serious topics on. Uh, a lot of it is anti-modern. A lot of it is not, oh, we want to go back to the past. It's there are – things about modernity that we don't like. And that's kind of what I'm hearing here is going back to the fundamentals because of these other ideologies that have arisen and threatened what we should already be doing. And, and I, I find actually some really interesting parallels there. You were mentioning a timeline, Nathan. Um, what, where are we right now? Because I, I, I want to get into a second topic for our, or not a second talk, but a second part of this topic for our second section. section. But um, where are we in terms of timeline, in terms of are these things still going on? You mentioned that the Russians retook uh, Palmyra. What, what's you know, what, what's kind of going on with, A, 
Have there been recent destructions of of heritage sites and and in terms of sort of the, the general situation in with in the area that Islamic State controls? Well, we've seen a, a if the if the Pentagon reports are to be believed, but also news reports and and firsthand observers, we've certainly seen a, a significant reduction in in the the territory controlled by uh, by ISIS. So the the percentages there vary not terribly widely, but they do vary. Certainly, the the Islamic State has been being pushed out of of Mosul um, bit by bit. An offensive that the Iraqi uh, national forces hoped would only last a few weeks has instead yeah. you know taken a considerable number of months. It's been a very difficult yeah. fight, but but this largely, began in, that began in October, right? Something like that. That's right. Around yeah, that, it's and they've yeah. largely pushed those forces back. And, and out, uh, the territory in Syria has also been been degraded, and and, and and ISIS has been pushed back there as well. So the levels of, um, and I think just to start just to start using the language now in, in segments ahead, the idea the levels of trafficking and also looting, I think, have started to to dwindle. But the most really? recent reports have been harder to come across. The most recent ports have been harder to come across because, again, we're we're dealing with a, a situation where that territory is increasingly under fog of war. Um, yeah, yeah. So that's been that's been a lot harder to get a to get a sense of. I also think, in many ways, the sen- the, the sensationalism surrounding that industry has declined. So we see yeah. fewer State Department discussions, and and another reason we yeah. may be seeing fewer State Department discussions is there's still. Very much undergoing a leadership transition. After I the say election. there's 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 a little less State Department than there used to be right now. Right, exactly. Yeah. And and also we're seeing, you know, I think the the news media is is turning its attentions, um, it's turning its attention elsewhere as well. Poss- possibly to glowing orbs of some kind. Um, <laughs> yeah, but uh, uh, but yeah. Uh, so why don't we? I, I, that kind of brings us up to present. Why don't we take our break and when we when we come back what i think we sh- really should talk about because you've mentioned several times reactions to the west trying to provoke the west i think that's a thing that we really need to talk about and sort of i think set up and you also mentioned the state department mentioned uh, sort of the attention on this i think we kind of need to set up a, a larger historical backdrop of archaeology politics empire and this whole concept of civilization great Okay, so let's go to break real quick, and when we come back, we will rejoin the conversation. Interested in archaeology? Want to hear from experts in the field about the latest discoveries and interpretations? Check out the Archaeology Show every other Saturday and let hosts Chris Webster and April Camp Whitaker take you deeper into the story. Check out the Archaeology Show at www.archpodnet.com forward slash archaeology and subscribe, rate, and comment on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and the Google Music Store. That's www.archpodnet.com forward slash archaeology. Now back to the show. Hey, everyone, and we are back, and we are still talking with Nathan French. Jeff, what did you want to jump in on in the next top, next part of this? All right, well, so 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 Nathan has given us uh, a good thumbnail sketch of Salafism and Jihadism and how this ties into the Islamic State and how this impacts, because one of the things they've made themselves infamous for is destroying archaeological resources. And we, we kind of hinted several times in our first segment at antagonizing the West, entangling the West. Why does the West care about dead stones? And frankly, I think a good you, – you, we could take this much farther back. But I think a really good starting place chronologically is – and I have to remember, I think it's 1798. Napoleon invades Egypt. 
Napoleon invades Egypt to cut the British Empire in half, to cut off his foes of the British Empire from India. But he also brings a lot of scholars with him and because there had been a long history of the Middle East and especially Egypt at that time, but then increasingly the area we're talking about being the cradle of civilization, the heart of civilization, the place of Abraham, the place of Moses, the place of Jesus, the Holy Land. And um, there were not archaeologists. There were people that did things that are vaguely like archaeology. There were not actual archaeologists at that time. But Napoleon brings a bunch of scholars with him. They do lots of work, some of which is still quite important, and most famously, soldiers find the Rosetta Stone, and it becomes a war trophy. The French take it, then the British beat the crap out of the French, and they take it, and it's a British museum, etc., etc. This kicks off a rush for imperial archaeology, for, for basically imperial agents, or for the glory of, of nation states and empires that are being built in Europe in the 19th century, a rush of going and getting archaeological things. And this is also true of the classic world, it's true of other places, but the Middle East is definitely one of these, these places. And, and, and Nathan, you again mentioned repeatedly dead stones and all of that. Um, there's a narrative that I think is actually really important for understanding this. If you start to look at travelers, it was at one time, was it the, was it the grand, the grand tour? Is that what it was called with the European? Like, you know, if you were coming of age, you would do, was anybody know what I'm talking yeah. about? Yeah. Yes, which is yeah, the which grand. also now the topic name of a, uh, not BBC Top Gear show. Oh, really? Uh, oh, wow. I yeah, didn't it's even not called the Grand that. Tour. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, and, and so basically, uh, at that time, young man, now it's sort of the backpacking through Europe for Americans. But you would go and see the sites of civilization. You would go to Egypt. You would go, if possible, to the areas that are now Iraq and, and, and Turkey, depending on the politics of the time. You go to Greece. And you would see and, and sort of get your worldly education before you came back and became an accountant for, you know, Jacob Marley or something back in London. And uh, this was part of that. And you see these images emerging, the, these paintings and then these, these etchings and then these photographs as the 19th century and technology progress of these ancient sites. And some of them are very cool. Some of them are in 3D. You know, you wear the, the stereoscopic glasses and do that. Um, and a lot of them have a very similar narrative of local people, often in the picture for scale, and there is often a narrative, either spoken or unspoken, that these people have nothing to do with these ruins. That the modern people of Egypt are standing in front of the Sphinx, but they're not really, the, and to some degree this ties into like our ancient alien stuff and, and our hyperdiffusion stuff. These aren't really the people that built it. These are just the, the sort of modern savages that live there. You know, it's like, well, these people are Greek, but they're not, you know, they're not the Greeks or, you know, this, we, we, we may, mm -hmm. Ken. This, I'm just saying this is replicated with the mound builder myth here in the United States. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, now in right. some cases it's not as literal as the mound builder myth. It's like, well, yes, these are their descendants, but look how much they've fallen. You know, if we, I, I mean, raise your hand. And of course this is an audio media, so this works beautifully, you know, but raise your hand if. You've ever seen any television, movie, play, et cetera, about the Romans where anybody had an Italian accent of any kind? Right. Yes. Where, the, where they, they, they didn't sound like Sir Lawrence Olivier. No, I mean, to us, the Romans are, are upper class British people. You know, that, that's a reality. Uh, um, and this, this plays into this, this area. So this, this kind of – when we're talking about who cares about these dead stones – these dead stones start to get created as the 
building blocks of civilization, which is why all of these Europeans and, and later Americans, but primarily Europeans, were going and grabbing them and sticking them in national museums and national capitals to yeah. show, hey, look, we got pieces of civilization. Look, I got the I got the Elgin marbles right here. That means I'm super civilized. I totally chiseled them from somewhere else. It means I'm super civilized. <laughs> and you know, you mentioned you mentioned you mentioned Nimrud and and uh, all the cool artifacts there. I was astounded when I went and saw all those things of Nimrud in the Bloomsbury District of London in the British Museum. I mean, they're they're beautiful and they're not in Nimrud, which of course we'll we'll get back to. What, yes, Sarah. I'm going to do something real quick. So you guys are saying Nimrud, and I understand that you also mean the word that a lot of people pronounce Nimrod. <laughs> I know it's a mispronunciation, but I just want to throw it out there. Nathan? I just, just so people know what we're talking about. Yeah, yes, Jeb? Can you help here? Because I can't. Uh, is it um, often that, pronounced Nimrod? tremendously, other than Nimrud is how I usually see it rendered in, um, in Arabic as well. And then it becomes a long ooh. And Nimrod is always something we use yeah, as an insult yeah. in Kentucky when I was growing up for other kids. <laughs> yeah. Also, is so I guess is I adapted, Nimrod, I guess I I adapted Nimrod. Nimrod. Did you say Nimrod? I, oh, I there heard, we go. I, I've, only heard, I've only heard Bugs Bunny pronounce it Nimrod when he's talking to Elmer Fudd. Yeah, he's yeah. Nimrod. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, All right, so I, I just wanted to clarify. I have heard the area have been described as Nimrod, um, especially with uh, people who are versed with Bibles. Is is, Nim, is Nimrod a personage as well? I believe. I think so. Not yes. Just in, uh-huh. Not just in not just in Kentucky. You know. Um, I think not, not just Kentucky. Kentucky. I think this is an actual. This is an actual personage. Yeah. No, but yeah, Nim, Nimrod is the is is the site, and and there are several others. You know, Paul Myra is the one that's gotten a lot of attention, but the the most iconic destruction I think has been has been uh, uh, of Nimrod, but. There, there starts to be this this real concept of of these things being important to outsiders, to the West, and the concept of the West is being built at this time by this process. Like the, these are these are entangled. I mean, that's not an idea that necessarily existed that that far ago. Uh, you know, people talk about Europeans. I mean, while I work in 16th century Mesoamerica, people didn't consider themselves Europeans. That idea had not emerged. They considered themselves from this part of Spain, or at best Spanish, in fact, they actually considered themselves Christians. That's how they often referred to themselves. But that was a whole other label as well. So by the by, the late 19th and early 20th century, you have this very strong relationship between um, empire and state and archaeology. I mean, the uh, the uh, Charles Warren, he was a lieutenant in the the Royal Engineers. He's often considered the first scientific biblical archaeologist. He basically secretly burrowed into um, uh, the Temple Mount in, in Jerusalem, and and did the first scientific, but related to the Bible text archaeology. He was in the military. He later, you know, does all kinds of uh, uh, military things for the British Empire, and ends up being actually the head of Scotland Yard, uh, and oversaw the infamous Trafalgar riots, and and then resigns after the uh, the Whitechapel murders, the the Jack the Ripper murders. So I mean, but he's the first scientific biblical archaeologist by by many accountants. So these are all entangled. And and I think to sort of get us into the specifics of the area of, of Islamic State, um, in the beginning of the 20th century, the intelligence network in the Middle East during World War One of the British Empire were basically archaeologists. It was most famously T.E. Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, he was an archaeologist. He used to spy on the Germans while doing archaeology right before the war, hanging out with Sir Leonard Woolley, 
And they all pretty much answered. They were, there's this group called the Oxford Four, and the, and the leader of them was Gertrude Bell. And, and they these were all intelligence agents. They were all basically masterminding British imperial forces in, in the Middle East at this time. Uh, Bell then goes on and more or less has been credited as being one of the architects of the nation of Iraq, of, of drawing the boundaries or helping to and creating the concept of Iraq as well as creating the National Museum, which, of course, famously was looted during the invasion in 2003. And, and one of the things that I find absolutely fascinating, uh, Nathan, you've dealt a bit with um, one of your, your sort of topics of interest has been, has been drone warfare. What's, what's some of the arguments for why drone warfare is so important specifically in this, in this context? Like what, what's used to justify it? Well, I mean, drone warfare is among many arguments of supporting it. One of them is, is essentially the utilitarian argument. You can cause maximum inflict maximum damage on the enemy with a with a minimum of cost, a minimum of technological cost, and and obviously, uh, with the exception of the the pilots who report suffering from PTSD and other mental health issues, uh, a minimum of human cost as well. Yeah, um, you don't have, so you don't have a pilot in a plane. It's a, it's a basically a robot exactly, fighter. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So you're able to you're able to sort of shape a battle space to your own will with a minimum of risk. Uh, to your side, I mean, you're you're risking basically the technology of the drone, um, and you're risking the unpopularity of if you cause any civilian casualties. Civilian casualties is collateral or or an, as a result of accidental um, targeting. But certainly, at the end of the day, the, the drone is a way of maintaining constant uh, surveillance and control over a territory. And I think right. I know where you're going with this. Yeah. Well, so the first time we talked about this, you brought something to my attention. Because, I, again, I had been sort of schooling myself up in, in sort of the, the history of archaeology and empire, but I'm still a, a piker when it comes to this. And you pointed out that this is not new. Uh, and no. and a, lot of the same, a lot of the same arguments of why this has to be done by the West and the region. Can you, can you, can you tell us about the first real air war? Right. Well, so as you noted, um, one of one of Britain's post World War One mandates was was Iraq, uh, fashioned as Mesopotamia, and that uh, there was an, an uprising in Iraq in May 1920. It united the Sunni and the and the Shia um, and various other tribes. Well, Sunni and Shia aren't tribes, but you know what I mean. It, it, it united the Sunni and Shia communities as well as the tribal communities uh, against the British together. And it became extraordinarily costly because the, the first attempt to put down this uprising cost somewhere in the neighborhood of 100,000, 150,000 troops. And Great Britain can no longer afford such costs, especially coming off of the, uh, the Great War. So Winston Churchill, along with other tacticians, came up with the idea of what they called aerial policing. And the goal was to be able to influence the economies and, and therefore the politics of Mesopotamian society through just the usage of air power. So you see a precedent for what the contemporary drone campaign is doing uh, in varying ways in the British colonial experience in, in Iraq, Mesopotamia in the 1920s. Right. And a lot of the, the argument for this, well, I mean, one, obviously, there are resources there. I mean, oil is starting to all of a sudden become really, really important. And it's Rather also, important. you know, the, the, the whole area has been a strategic crossroads for a very long time, and there's other, other reasons. But there's also, there is increasingly... And, you know, it's the what was it? Uh, is it Kipling's The White Man's Burden? Is that is that the right. poem of, right. of bringing humanitarian concerns and humanitarian support to all of these benighted regions? This is this is sort of this colonial this colonial ideology. And is 
are we seeing that at this point? Are we seeing a lot of this sort of this discussion that we have to kind of be the human? You, you know, you use the word policing. I think that's not an accidental word. No, it's not an accidental word. I mean, the, the goal is to bring conditions of peace and stability both to these societies, but also to the the societies that that, that are seeking their own protection. So. When the United States is using a drone to police a territory, it's not doing so necessarily to help protect Yemenis, although ostensibly that's often presented as one of the goals. It's also to protect the American people and ensure a certain standard of life. Um, now, as far as I know, there's never been a drone that's been protecting Palmyra, but certainly we see the, the rhetoric of protecting sites alongside the rhetoric of protecting populations uh, when, we're talking about, when we're talking about ISIS. Right. And, and so – this this seems very familiar. This so we we've got we've got you know you mentioned ISIS saying why they carry it why they and by the way I always use Islamic State I try not to use ISIS simply because the Egyptian god ISIS is kind of awesome our goddess is kind of awesome. <laughs> uh, um, but Jim, uh, did you say make ISIS great again? I think you just said make ISIS great again. I I'm pretty sure I didn't. I am a state employee of the state of Ohio. I did not say that. Um, I'm getting I'm getting hate mail for this. Uh, aren't maybe I? a little. But um, maybe a but, little. But, but no, I I don't think so. At least not for that. But uh, so we've we've got this same kind of humanitarian concerns, and there are, are legitimate, obvious legitimate humanitarian concerns. I mean, there's a reason millions of refugees are fleeing fleeing this region from the outside, and some of it's being tied into the archaeological. I mean, you mentioned the State Department, so we talked about Islamic State using these as a theater to antagonize the West. And, and I would argue that the, that the Taliban destroying the Bamiyan Buddhas in Afghanistan was also very much aimed at antagonizing a West that was frankly more concerned with the destruction of, say, Buddhist uh, icons than, than other things. One of the other things that's been brought up with the archaeological has been looting. And I think, I think for that, we should also look a little at the history of, specifically, we've talked about the British Empire, let's talk about the Americans more recently in the region and the archaeological. In, in 1990 and 1991, as, as Desert Shield and then Desert Storm were kind of gearing up, uh, there was at that time concern for archaeological sites. And very famously, I remember pictures of Saddam Hussein parking like MiG-23s next to the ziggurat at Ur and concerned that you know, oh, allied forces. And I remember back then some of the, the first smart bombs, the first, you know, laser guided munitions that most people had become aware of. That was one of the things that was mentioned, like, oh, they can destroy these things and not damage, yes, people, but also important cultural sites and so forth. Um, in this, this really perked up, though. Archaeologists stepped up and they volunteered and helped in 2003 and 2004 with the coalition invasion and occupation of Iraq. After the absolute shit show of the looting uh, of the, the National Museum in Baghdad, there were a lot of efforts to stop looting. Like, their archaeologists had been very familiar with, in areas of conflict, you have looters. And there was this concern that stuff was being sold, stuff was being uh, looted, stuff was being taken from the museum, stuff was being taken from sites. Uh, and so archaeologists, they came up with, like, uh, one of the ones I love is this, this, playing, this playing card deck. Uh, can right. you can you help us remember what was well, the, there I was do, another... I want to nudge yeah. I want to nudge that a bit yes. mainly on the basis of those cards so of course we're all familiar yeah. with the deck of cards that had the Iraqi Baathist leadership that's what you know, that's various, what I was asking you to go to yeah. various figureheads were very you know were were given various values and the and the soldiers in their downtime I assume playing cards learned who these leaders were and in part I think it was one of those decks that that helped lead to the, the recognition and arrest of uh, so-called chemical Ali. Uh, in, in Iraq, 
the other deck, though, was developed by, by Lori Rush, who was an army uh, archaeologist and anthropologist. She developed a deck of cards with, with notable historical um, material culture, other things that would be worth protecting both in Iraq and in Afghanistan. So I guess they multipurposed the deck. I think what I always found interesting about that deck, and and I'm gonna I'm gonna try to nudge the conversation yeah, yeah. a little Go bit, ahead, is too. the top the top of that deck of cards says ROE first, meaning rules of engagement first. Now, typically, right. you think of ROE or rules of engagement as involving individuals, uh, specific individuals or communities, etc. Maybe economic resources like don't bomb oil fields, um, or do if you're trying to degrade the enemy's you know economic capability. Here, ROE is being used for for um, archaeological sites and material culture. And I think what's interesting about that is, you know, the British were patrolling Iraq in the 20s in, in part to control it, to control the politics and the economics to maintain a steady supply, and, and arguably to maintain a steady supply of oil. There are a whole litany of reasons, as we all know, why the invasion of Iraq occurs in 2003. But to, but to see these artifacts in essence as something requiring rules of engagement suggests there is some sort of resource protection taking place. Just as one is trying to preserve economic resources, one is also trying to preserve cultural resources. Yeah. I think that connection's interesting. No, I, I, I absolutely agree. And, I, and, I, and I, I think that that ties into this, again, this notion of uh, I actually have an image of a few of them here, and they very much talk about uh, civilization in a lot of them. Uh, there was, there's one of them. Yeah, this site, I forget what site it is. This site has survived for 17 centuries. Will it, uh, will it and others survive you? It's the uh, Chesfiron Arch in Iraq. Uh, and so it, it goes for, yeah, 99% of humankind's history can only be understood through archaeology, ancient ruins at uh, Sarmath in Iraq, and, and so forth. That it, there very much is that ideology, and that is laudable. Because, I mean, there, there, there were reports early on of people seeing sandbags uh, full of, like, relics. You know, people were, they just were like digging into archaeological context and for just for construction fill. And, and that stuff to some degree came to an end. There also was, unsurprisingly, when you have that many people moving across borders and, and doing all these sorts of things, there were very early on or in eBay, you know, and you can still see these cylinder steels coming out of this region, archaeological artifacts coming out of this region and going to going to the West. And of course, that's the real that's the real thing here. So. But let's set that up. So you mentioned State Department communiques and State Department things. What are you referring to? Right. So around the same time, so after that June 2014 seizure of Mosul by, by ISIS and with the unfolding of the campaigns in Iraq and Syria, the State Department, along with its partners in the region, various American archaeological centers and also um, Syrian archaeologists, they worked together very closely to sort of articulate what they were arguing was a burgeoning looting uh, trade that ISIS was was uh, gaining tremendous profit from. Uh, but ISIS's own narratives would seem to contradict that to a point. So I think that's going to be, definitely be something worth exploring after the yeah. break. We're, when we come back, let's there there's, there's a cache of records, which is interesting, some analysis, and we may have to talk about a giant plastic arch. Mm -hmm. 
Hey, podcast fans, check out the ARC 365 podcast at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash ARC 365. That's A-R-C-H 365 for your daily dose of archaeology. Each episode is less than 15 minutes long, and we have some great guests recording about awesome archaeology. We also try to throw in some definitions and basic archaeological information. So check out the 365 Days of Archaeology podcast only in 2017 at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash ARC 365 today. Find us also on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Music by typing ARC365 into the search. Now back to the show. And we are back, and Jeb, you've got a plastic arch you want to sell me? I will let other people sell you the plastic arch. We'll come to the plastic arch, or, or as, a, as a friend of mine puts it, Archie McArchface. Um, but well, yeah, we'll, we'll come back to that. But so what you were telling us is that according to the State Department, once Islamic State emerged, there was a massive new network of looting, a new, a new threat to the archaeological heritage that was unprecedented. What part of what I'm saying is not entirely accurate? Well, so we, what we have to understand is the, the ISIS has focused very much upon having an extraction-based economy. Whether that be oil or heavy taxation or outright uh, theft from certain people, certain communities, especially non-Muslim minority communities in territories under their control, ISIS has always had an extraction economy. And in this case, I think we have to realize that for ISIS, uh, antiquities are also a resource. So ISIS has a really well at least on paper, a very broadly well-sketched-out bureaucracy, including departments of of energy, electricity, electricity, street cleaning, garbage removal, public service, uh, morality police, the Hezbollah, uh, relations with the various tribes. But they also have what's called in Arabic the Diwana Riquez, or the, if you want to really roughly translate it in a slightly humorous way, the, the department of, of very valuable things that come out of the ground. And so for them, Diwan Rikaz will control oil, it will control metals, it will also control antiquities. And we know, thanks to the reporting of a journalist named uh, Ayman al-Tamimi, who's, who's from Mosul, that there were fatwas that, the, uh, that ISIS issued that instructed its fighters and commanders to not engage in looting antiquities. Now, this runs directly counter to what the State Department and the FBI and other federal agencies, as well as their European counterparts, have reported, which was a, a burgeoning and antiquities trade. And in part, that conversation was based upon documents that were seized in a raid um, that said that, you know, that, that claimed that Abu Sayyaf, who at the time was a high-ranking uh, ISIS officer, was who's also believed to have kept, um, quite tragically, of course, uh, Caleb Mueller as a, as a slave, the American citizen, um, he was once in charge of their oil smuggling operations, and the document C suggested that they were receiving, you know, maybe upwards to a few, uh, several hundred thousand dollars, if not millions of dollars worth of revenue from from antiquities looting. What what strikes me as more likely is that ISIS wasn't necessarily engaged; their, their foot soldiers weren't engaged in the direct looting and selling, but instead ISIS turned a very very blind eye to the looting as long as they received their cut of the trafficking proceeds so it was a form yeah. of extraction for them just let me let me let me uh, ask let me ask you ken and sarah you said I, I have i have the article here from the new york times 2016 
The total sum shown from these tax receipts, this is the cash you're talking about, right? Of documents? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, was $265,000. Now, to me, on I, and I get paid, all right, but that's a fair amount of money. Thousand? Okay, yeah. exactly. Not million, thousand. Right. Now, how does that stack up with other looting around the world? Well, it's obviously, that's that's tiny. That they're... There are examples yeah, of individual really artifacts that have gone for that have been looted and have been purchased by museums for mo- individual artifacts that are, yeah. have been worth more than that amount. But the, the question that I want to raise, though, here is how do we dis- how does ISIS distinguish? How does the Islamic State distinguish um, between those items that must be destroyed and those items that okay somebody can dig those up and, and sell them as long as we get our cut? Yeah, I think that I think that goes to I think there's a few ways of, of going about that. Now, I'm speaking hypothetically here, not off direct right. evidence, because I haven't seen, you know, direct legal literature from them that suggests the methodology for this. I think when we're talking about major monumental architecture involving a deity, particularly as we noted, when they first moved in to these new territories, they started killing off or not killing off, but destroying the, the material culture related to gods that were specifically mentioned in the Quran or fit within that Quranic narrative of destroying the old gods to to preserve the oneness of the one true God. Sure. So I think those those artifacts merit destruction. If we're talking about a small piece, we're talking about a, a, a ring um, well, I'll get to the rings in a second. We're talking about a small clay shard, or we're talking mm-hmm. about some sort of small animal figure, etc. Those so, are items that right, exactly a cylinder seal. Those are items that they're not necessarily going to see as violating uh, shirk, and they will allow someone to profit on that again as long as they yeah. receive their cut. If we're talking about a ring, or we're talking about an ancient coin that the metal, the metal of which can be determined. That's quite easy for them within their understanding of Islamic law because it, there are there are weights and measures, the dinar and the dirham. I mean, ISIS issued publications saying they were going to return to the gold standard, so they're quite fine with measurements of gold, silver, bronze, etc. as as artifacts of exchange. In fact, those may be the e- easiest things for them to sell off. And, and I if, would it's guess, a, if it's eighty, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Ken. Yeah, I was going to say I would guess also that if this is so much about performance it's much more dramatic to destroy some monumental statue of, of some deity. That's dramatic. That, that, that furthers their narrative. But if all you're doing is smashing cylinder seals, you're not going to get that same reaction. Right. And monuments, and monuments don't fit in the suitcase. Right. Exactly. Right. Now, um, another, another thing that, that, that I was really interested in when I, I was reading the PowerPoint that Jeff sent around was this notion also that, that where's the the end point? Where do these materials end up? And that what that that pre-Islamic stuff ends up in the West. So there's a yes. market here for those looted antiquities, but that is but but Islamic antiquities end up in the Gulf states. That's and, right. How does that happen? Well, you, in part, you wonder if it's okay. So if again, hypothetical or uh, sort of hypothetically, a little bit there, a little bit of hypothetical, the demand, I would think the demand would be highest for the Islamic art material culture, regardless of its origin, uh, licit or illicit, in in those Gulf states where you have wealthy buyers looking to purchase that sort of symbolic capital. The same in the West with with this sort of, you know, Western Mesopotamian uh, sort of narrative of civilization. And in fact, we do know a lot of the trafficking Mm. routes follow the paths of refugees and i've always wondered if you know these looters were selling goods to those fleeing syria and fleeing these conflict zones 
They sold him these artifacts saying, this will be worth something. It may not be worth direct money, but if you trade this with the white, white the correct Westerner, it will open a door for you as you move into yeah. Europe. Yeah. Right? yeah, like this, and this cylinder seal got our family out of there. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's understandable. I mean, we've talked about looting before in uh, on this podcast and on other podcasts, and it's I, it's easy to make it sound like it's a cut and dry issue, you know, looting bad, done. And I think when we're dealing with like looting here in America, where we're dealing with pot hunters and people who are just going out to dig up things because they want a pretty bottle in their kitchen. I mean, that's pretty cut and dry. But when we're dealing with things like uh, what Nathan just mentioned, what Jeb and Nathan just mentioned, the whole like this cylinder seal got my family out of this situation. I mean, it creates a really weird problem, I feel like. Well, and, and, it, and it gets to, I think, the, the real core issue here. You know, it's, you know, can you mention, yeah, the, the Islamist stuff goes to the to capital in the Gulf states. The non-Islamic stuff goes to capital in London. Right. And in Germany and in Las Vegas and in New York and in Tokyo and in Moscow and, and everywhere else where this stuff is seen as, oh, and civilization. But let's talk about that. So the last thing I, I think that's – and I think this is actually in many ways one of the most interesting parts, at least to my my interests. Is, and so therefore that's why they're important. Uh, is <laughs> how, how – not how archaeologists react because archaeologists are like, look. A lot of archaeologists are like clearly like you need to support the the local archaeologists on the scene. Uh, I have found numerous articles were like, look, yes, we're doing what we can, but oh my god, look at these people who are like risking their lives to save these, or professionals who are Muslims, who are Syrians, who are you know all, all these kinds of things. Right. But then you have people, some of whom are in politics, and some of whom are in business, who I think sense opportunities and they see the symbolic value. So the so the right off the bat, I mean, we keep talking about. You know, who's the market? Well, the market is galleries and museums and, and collectors. Mm -hmm. uh, and there have been collectors associations and spokespeople. And I don't know if there have been museum spokespeople, but I know there have been for collectors who have said, well, there because looting has gotten so much worse with Islamic State. Of course, there was massive amounts of looting before this. I mean, just absolutely massive in that right, region and exactly. elsewhere. This is a drop in the bucket. It, and as, as Nathan pointed out, one of the most famous photos that makes the surface of Syria look like the surface of the moon was actually taken in territory that, as I understood it, in 2012 wasn't under ISIS control. But it's yeah. often cited as satellite imagery showing ISIS looting, right? Yeah, so, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, 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 it's desert and it's brown people, Nathan. It's all the same. But, uh, <laughs> but, um, we're so sensitive yeah, here. But, and, and it's sarcasm, everybody, for the love of God. Oh, no, I understand. Uh, not yes. just you, I mean, our audience. But um, but so they were literally arguing, well, because things have gotten so much worse, we we can't let restrictive government get in the way. We need to loosen the regulations on collecting and trafficking and and importing so that we can save these things. So they're doing God's work. They're doing God's work by 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 producing a safe haven for these things that would otherwise be destroyed. By by they are totally helping the situation yeah, yeah. in every way by providing a market. Yes, that 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 is absolutely how logic and economics work. Is if you build a market, I'm sure nobody will meet the demand. I'm sure nobody will. <laughs> well, and there's also this argument of, and I don't know if you guys have heard it, but I've heard it a few times. The whole like it's their history; they should be allowed to do with it as they please. 
And who are we to step in and say, no, you can't sell no, your own I history if that's what you want to do? I applies here because I don't think it's seen as their history. It gets back to that colonial idea of like, well, these people standing in front of these monuments, they're just inconvenient barbarians in between us and the cradle of civilization. And I think that idea is still really strong. Mm -hmm. And also Islamic State is in conflict with the legitimate governments of the region with their archaeologists. So no, I, I don't think that applies here, but I do know what you're talking about. I, I, I think here, though, there's not going to be too many apologists for, for Islamic State that are going to, I think, make that argument. So the one that really drives me up a wall. Now, I'm saying what I'm about to say. As someone who has a 3D printer and a 3D scanner downstairs, as someone who's kind of made their name at my employer a bit with, with technology, um, has been the technology can solve this. There have been all of these efforts by companies and interests and so forth to use tech. And some of them are interesting. Some are like using GIS, using ge geographical information system programs to track looting, to show hotspots. Uh, you know, very famously, and I would not criticize this at all, Sarah Parkak and her space archaeology, where she won the, TED, the $1 million mm -hmm. TED Prize, to use to public uh, crowdsourcing, or not, crowds, uh, not crowdfunding, but crowd interaction, public science, to get people to use satellite and aerial imagery to detect the evidence of looting and work with local governments. That's a really cool idea, because that's getting at the larger issue. But there have been people that have been really trying to use um, tech to sort of ameliorate this problem. And a lot of it often ends up feeling very self-serving or serving of certain ideologies. And the one that caught a lot of attention was what archaeologist Gabe Moshanska called on Twitter from University College London, Archie McArchface. Um, not long before Brexit, and I say that simply because uh, at that time, Mayor of London, Boris Johnson, was, all, was he, I think he was mayor at that time, was all over this thing. Uh, after the Palmyra Arch, this beautiful, this beautiful arch from Roman era from Palmyra had been destroyed by Islamic State. It, it got reconstructed using 3D tech, and then they printed out a scale version of it. Not a full scale. If I remember, I think it was like a partial scale, mm -hmm. and it kind of looks like a butter sculpture. We, we can link to pictures of this in the show notes. <laughs> it kind of looks like a butter sculpture, <laughs> yes, and they put it in Trafalgar Square. Now, now did I mention – that this is in Trafalgar Square, which is pretty much the heart of the British Empire and named after the guy that drove, that, that more or less captured the Rosetta Stone from Napoleon. I mean, this is, this, this, this is not neutral imagery. Um, but so much wordage around this was barbarians versus civilization, that we, Western civilization, are saving the cradle of civilization sometimes Western right. not in there, using our high-tech advanced ways. And all I can think of is, well, if we just fly enough biplanes or drones or what, I mean, it's, it feels almost like the same argument. And also, and, and, and a lot of archaeologists looked at this thing and were like, this thing's a joke. This is being used to support bombing campaigns. It's also being used to support weird ideas about materiality. Like, again, I 3D print stuff, and looking at this thing was just odd. Uh, Ken, it sounds like from your lab, after you finally <laughs> yes. got a picture of it, yeah, it's sort of it sort of does look like a butter sculpture. We'll have to put a picture of that yeah. up. Well, you know, it, it, like it really an ag fair. Yeah, no, it it really does. We have an ag fair up here in Connecticut where you see you see they have all you know they sculpt a cow and it just it just looks bizarre. 
and, and that the the 3D the 3D image the 3D print of the of the arch looks a lot like a butter sculpture. Yeah, and I'm not. I, I do a lot of 3D printing, and uh, there's been a lot of talk in the archaeology community about 3D printing these artifacts. Any artifact, honestly, to be used for like teaching purposes or just manhandling right. purposes, so you don't break the actual yeah. thing. But the, a lot of the problem is, is unless you've got the technology to make that scan decent in the first place, you're going to end up with these butter sculptures. And also it comes down to your printer. I mean, if you don't got, sorry, wow, my English. Um, if you don't have a fine enough nozzle and a good enough printer, it's not going to well, turn out well, I, that great. I think technologically, and you may as well be printing butter, well, I guess. Technologically, I, I think they just chose a poor material. But technologically, it's, yeah. it's fine. That's not the problem. It's what what the hell is this thing? It's the symbolism. It's the yeah, symbolism it's, inherent it's, in it. Absolutely. It's, it's weird. It's this bizarre piece. And it, and it clearly, you, you mentioned... You mentioned State Department, Nathan. Is there a lot of this language? Was there a lot of this language in the sort of the State Department stuff, or was it more coming from outside political actors of like civilization well, and barbarism? And I didn't see I didn't see as much of the, the sort of civilization and barbarism narrative out of the State Department. But what I sort of saw was obviously there's the concern about the economic flow, right? To to okay. ISIS. Okay. There's there is the concern about, but but I will say what I, what I was impressed with the State Department was their concern about the um, Syrian cultural heritage, which of course ties into okay. the articles we were talking about of Syrians themselves, like we mentioned earlier, uh, Dr. Assad being brutally murdered as they tried to protect these these sites. So I don't necessarily they, they fashion themselves as the preservers of Western civilization, but I will tell you who did. Uh, yeah. When Russia retook Palmyra oh. in May of 2016, the first thing they did was to throw up, of course, large large banners of of, of Vladimir Putin and 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 Assad and others, and then have a, a classical music concert in the amphitheater, the very amph same amphitheater where those men had been brutally executed um, some months before, about eight or nine months before. So it, it was a sense of restaking a civilizational claim on that which had been corrupted, in essence, by the by the barbarians. Uh, and again, it goes back, I think, to this idea of of the of culture as a resource and and i think yeah. and putting the arch in trafalgar i think you're absolutely right it's another way of locating that civilizational narrative in a very specific way but it's almost as if and i'm gonna i'm probably gonna get made fun of for this one but i mean the the, the arch itself is a low risk drone right you don't risk anything printing out that arch yeah and having it in that's true right it's it's yeah it's a sort of it's a sort of low risk way of showing yourself as a defender of civilization yeah um, it's, it's just a show yeah yeah. No, I, I think I think that's absolutely a good way. And again, I, a lot of archaeologists criticize it. And by the way, I actually – State Department loves diplomacy. I, I mean they've done other things. USAID does good things, in the, but it's also in other things. Uh, I have a number of good friends in state, actually some of whom are archaeologists. Yeah, and, and so um, I don't want to make that as a criticism. It's more just that I think there, there were larger political forces that oh, – Yeah, and – and and some of them were much more again outside of government uh, with with some of these some of these quotes, but yeah the the, the orchestra that that's that's amazing um, and it just this all becomes we talk about performance and all of this becomes very much performance and yet like you said there are, are people who understand this stuff on the ground the, one of the articles we, we mentioned ordinary Syrians are risking their lives to protect their cultural heritage uh, by Emma Khalif Kunleif uh, on on the wire is talking and I see the same arguments in latin america you know you see all these big shows about like looting but the people that deal with it are like peruvian archaeologists and guatemalan archaeologists on the ground dealing with people that 
are also in the drug trafficking and the human trafficking and in exotic animals trafficking businesses. So, yeah, it's a lot of people performing kind of at times fantastical narratives. I think that's why this kind of fits here in addition to other reasons that – and then we've seen this before. People take archaeology. They take heritage. They know it has value and they use it for their own, own political ends. This is not exactly a new story in that regard. Right. No, and it's it's I don't I don't think it's a story that we're going to be able to solve anytime soon because a lot of history is pageantry, well, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's 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 uh, this is one of the things we've also talked about. We're not just in the debunking or the whatever. We're in the this is also inherently interesting cultural. So, oh, Nathan? I, yes. Go ahead. Yeah. Also, what I what I, to close from my last sort of thought, what, what I would always yeah. remind my students and what I would sort of remind the audience is this sort of idea of civilization and state building is occurring all the time. And even though it may look initially as extraordinarily barbaric, uh, ISIS is involved in the same type of project. Uh, they use yeah. more violence or they're more explicit in their violence to express that sort of state building. Well, yeah, I mean, there, there, there are times in the history of pretty much any empire, if there happened to be YouTube, it would look pretty awful to say, to say, yeah. the, uh, to say the least. You, YouTube is pretty awful if you know where to go. And I'm yeah. not encouraging yeah, people to go but, that down, but it, it's out there. If Nathan, you thank you so much for surviving our audio problems. This has yes. definitely been one of our somewhat more audio challenged uh, episodes. It's, it's just yeah. fuzzy. It's, uh, it's a little fuzzy. fuzzy, to say the least. Well, hopefully uh, everyone makes it to the end. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was great, great meeting you, Nathan. This is a wonderful, wonderful podcast. Yeah, great thank job. you. And uh, I want to thank you all for, for showing up. Any any other last thoughts? Uh, no, I, this has been a really deep conversation. I hope our listeners really appreciated it. Um, I know it's not uh, not our normal thing, but I think this is a very important topic, and I think it, it very much is in line with the show. Yeah, it's, it's very much in line with the show. So I hope people like get some value out of this. And, and Nathan, thank you so much for bringing all of your knowledge to the show with us. Absolutely. Of course, thanks for the invitation. Anytime. As one will call. No, we don't do a dinosaur. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. Our music was provided by Archeosuit Productions. If you like what you've heard, Please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher and share us wherever you use social media. You can contact us with your questions, comments, or angry email at archiefantasies at gmail.com. You can follow the podcast at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. You can follow the blog at www.archiefantasies.com and get updates on Tumblr and Twitter at Archiefantasies. You can also look for us on Facebook. If you're looking for the show notes for this episode, go to the podcast website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash Archiefantasies. Thanks again for listening. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. We don't do dinosaurs. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.